Let me guys ask you guys a question. Um, culturally, would you all say that marriage is becoming more or less meaningful and desirable? Or, or let's start with meaningful, mm -hmm. like just in our culture. Is marriage becoming more or less so? And I don't like. I don't think there's a right answer. I'm just curious what you think. I think it's becoming less meaningful. Why do you say that? Because I think that people know that there's a way out and they don't hold it as like sacred. They just know that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They take it very lightly. Mm -hmm. And divorce is just a very big option for people. Okay, so yeah, div we, maybe divorce is just more it's just common. Yeah. Okay. It's familiar. I agree. Um, I had a bride say to me today, uh, well, brides say this a lot, they're, and, and like they're not serious, I think, but they always say like, you know, I'm hoping this is like my only wedding, <laughs> so like <laughs> I really want to love my dress because I think this is going to be the one, the one time, and I'm like, yeah. do you think? <laughs> before who like was getting married in a reality show to somebody she had never met and stuff and so it's like why yeah. like well because you know I'm older and whatever yeah. so it's like marriage like isn't sacred to a lot of people that come in my store yeah that's interesting I, I didn't think about the fact that like you'd be here and have like this whole plethora of <laughs> experience <to be laughs> Yeah. It's, it's important to get a good dress in case you have to use it again, though. <laughs> good quality, washable. <laughs> it's funny because in some circles, it seems like, you know, they're fighting hard for marriage. But then in others, they're fighting hard to get divorces. So it's, it's interesting um, thinking about marriage and defining marriage with our culture today, I think. Yeah. I, I'd say, I would say in some ways, mainly because of romantic comedies and stuff, sometimes like this desire for marriage is even, is emphasized. Like it's just the, the movies always end in the wedding, right? Because that's like the pinnacle of true love is they get married and there's not usually like, a movie that starts with marriage, because then it's like not going to be. Then marriage lets people down usually. We just filmed a marriage scene at Fuller House. Oh yeah, and it's the final episode. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, we like we we romanticize or just make the wedding and marriage like even relationships on on in the media. It's like you wake up with good breath in the morning, and you know all these like kind of fake um, realities about relationships and um, so yeah I, I don't know um, I would say that in in many cultures I don't know that this is true across the board but there's there's still like this kind of strong dream of getting married and, and this wedding just represents this pinnacle event of love um, however being married then in our society I think is seen as something that just grows boring over time and unfulfilling and eventually you just kind of want out of it and find another kind of romantic experience. So I think it's really ironic. I was just like 
processing through this passage, which talks about marriage and it talks about people who, who won't be married. And um, just find it really interesting and kind of sadly ironic that many who aren't married seek to be married because of how great it might be, but then those who are married seek divorce because it's not as great as they imagined it to be. Um, and I think we have something different, to, a different way to think about it than that. Um, so we're going to talk about marriage and divorce and singleness tonight. And before we kind of dive into the passage a little bit, I want to just say three things that I think are important on this topic before we start. One is, as we're talking about marriage and divorce, for all of you single people on this side of the room. Um, on the table. Just, yeah, the kids' table. The outcasts. Um, like, don't... Just turn your chair that way. Yeah, don't listen, okay? No. no, the whole passage, I think, works together and is relevant to for everybody to listen to, regardless of even if somebody's going to stay single for their whole life. Like, I think it speaks to all of this. So, like, stick in there and see that I think this has something to, to tell all of us. Um, secondly, I just want to say, and I hope you guys know this and see this in me, but I love marriage, and it's like I, I'm so happy to be married, and I, I don't want to not be married. And so uh, we'll talk like kind of pragmatically or, or um, maybe a little coldly at times just about marriage, um, but it's like something that I love and I hope that you guys know that and I don't I don't want to sound like this is something that I just want to get out of because um, it's certainly not and it's it's great. Really great. <laughs> I hope not. Um, and then thirdly I just want to mention like probably all of us in one way or another are really acutely connected to the topic of divorce, whether you've experienced it yourself or whether your parents have been divorced or whether you know, almost all of us, I'm sure in one way or another, have close friends or family that have gone through that or at least considered that. And I just want to point out that this is, I don't think mistakenly, this teaching on divorce comes immediately after a parable and do you all remember what the last parable was about in the end of chapter 18? The 10,000 talents and... Yeah, around, yeah, the topic is like forgiveness and that we should forgive. And certainly, like, I think the main point of that is that we ought to forgive each other. But certainly we see in that text that God, the, the father, or the, the king in the story, is, has an overwhelming amount of forgiveness. Um, and so I, I think it's important that we paint a clear picture and I don't think Jesus gives this teaching to condemn those who have divorced and, re and repented. Um, it's, not, it's not meant to condemn those people. He's speaking about what marriage is about, though. So I, I just know that it can be a, a sensitive issue um, to people because, it's, because it is so common, like you said, Bailey. Um, so it's set in the context of a great forgiveness that God provides, though. So I want you to remember that. Um, 
But it's also in the context of calling a spade a spade, right? And we have to be faithful, I think, to address everything that we come to, especially as we kind of work through, like we do, a book of the Bible. And even the stuff that's close to home, or even if it's like a culturally kind of acceptable um, thing or sin, then we still need to look at it and we need to talk about it. And I'm not talking about the sin of divorce so much as just the sin of idolatry of, of marriage and what it is and what it isn't. Um, but again, there's overwhelming kind of unfathomable forgiveness from the Father, uh, no matter what the sin is. So, so Jesus, he, he leaves Galilee where he's done most of his ministry um, that we've looked at so far. And for the last time, he, he starts to head down to Jerusalem or south to Jerusalem where he's going to die um, a few chapters from now. So uh, let me read again, I purposely read this a couple times just so that we can kind of remember what we're learning about. Um, I'll read these first several verses again. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there's this testing or this slight trick of sorts that the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus in. Um, And they're asking, like, for what reasons are it lawful to, to divorce for any reason? And Jesus is kind of it's, uh, I don't know for sure, but it seems like there's a trap here of if Jesus says, yes, you can get divorced for these reasons, then he's kind of going against God's design of marriage, his institution of marriage. Or if Jesus says you can actually get a divorce, or, or, or you, you, you can't get a divorce, then he's going against maybe something that Moses said that we'll read here in a second. But I think they're, just, they're trying to trap Jesus into some detail of the law that they could hold against him. And there was a debate between different Pharisees about what was like a legitimate reason or a God-honoring reason to um, divorce a spouse. So turn to Deuteronomy. I don't say that real often, but it's going to be worth our time tonight. Deuteronomy 24. This is what um, probably the Pharisees are are thinking of when they ask Jesus this question. And so we're going to read the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. And as we read it, I want you guys to think about what is the command that Moses gives, or that God gives through Moses, you could say. Where is the actual command? Because remember, in our text, it says, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So is that the command that they should give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? What, what's the actual command? So somebody read Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some <coughs> in, in this, indecency, indecency sorry, mm -hmm. in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so like that first part, what a run-on sentence, right? Yeah. <laughs> this happens, and this happens, and this happens. So, um, do y'all, like, catch what the command there is? Can anybody, like, summarize that? The command is that if she gets divorced the second time, or her second husband dies, she can't back, go back to the first husband? Right, yeah. Yeah, so... So the Pharisees are interpreting this to mean something like this. This is uh, how one commentator kind of summed up what they, what they read into that. <clears throat> if a man takes a wife and she doesn't find favor in his eyes, he shall write her a bill of divorce and shall send her away. Like that's kind of the, the, what, how, how they were reading that. Like this was something that the guy was supposed to do if he found some indecency in his wife versus what, how the Hebrew more naturally reads. And I think our translation does a good job of translating. If a man takes a wife and she doesn't find favor in his eyes, and he writes a bill of divorce, and he sends her away, and her second husband kind of does the same thing, then her first husband must not marry her again. It's kind of the idea. So option one, yeah. Option one, the husband <coughs> should divorce his wife because she's done something indecent is kind of what, what maybe the Pharisees were understanding. And then the, case, the question is, well, what's the indecency that, should, that would lead him to do that? Um, or what's written here and what seems to like actually be the case is if all of these things, if this string of events happens, right or wrong, condoned by God or not, then the original husband should not marry her. That's kind of the command that we find in there. So there's really no command, first of all, like they're kind of insinuating in our Matthew 19, that he should divorce the indecent spouse. But instead, Jesus says, Moses allowed it or he permitted it and just because Moses allowed it or permitted it does that mean that it was right or good for Israel to be doing that no. I wouldn't say I'd say it's like you know polygamy we read about polygamy in the Old Testament many of Israel's kings had multiple wives and was was it allowed did they do something to stop it not not really, like it just seemed to be something that was, but was it God's intent? Is that what God's design was for marriage and is for marriage? I think any evangelical Christian would say, well, no, polygamy is not. So I think it's the same thing with divorce. Like, was there an allowance? Was it something that was permitted for a time? Yeah, it kind of maybe kind of seems to be, but is it God's intent or his desire? So, so look at verse 8, back in Matthew, uh, Matthew 19. Verse 8 kind of answers the, the question about what Moses allowed or not. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
So they stand your heart. Israel's heart was so hard that it was allowed, but from the beginning that wasn't God's design. So the Pharisees are saying, hey, what's, what's allowed? What's the reason to um, accept, for divorce to be acceptable or not? And Jesus is saying, do you really want to know how to live within the allowable limits of a hard-hearted person? Like, is that really what you're asking? And instead, Jesus kind of shifts his focus to what's intended. So uh, turn to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. This is kind of what Jesus refers back to. He kind of combines some of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 1.27, someone read that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so male and female are, are, are created in the, in the image of God. Then uh, chapter 2, I'll read um, starting verse 18. The Lord God said... This is, again, just what Jesus is referring back to. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then skip to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus, in answering the Pharisees' question, he says basically this. Let me tell you what God's intent or God's design for marriage was. Oneness. Male and female, one. He... he, woman is uniquely created out of man and these two different sexes when you kind of get the sense of, of that Genesis account they, they correspond with each other they're complementary to each other and because of this unique relationship between man and woman they can become one flesh in fact physically they were even created to do so if you know what I mean and so God's God's point, the point that Jesus is making here is God's intention for marriage is oneness. That's in the design. Jesus answers their question, hey, what's allowable in this way? He gives this repeated answer of, hey, he created them complementary to, to fit with one another. He, he says the man shall hold fast to his wife. That's like a, that's almost literally means like to glue to his wife. Um, the two shall become one flesh. He says a second time, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Here's God's design. God has joined them together. Let not man separate them. God's intent for marriage is oneness. So you guys see what's happening here. Like the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And Jesus is answering, God made them one. Don't separate what God has joined together. So the Pharisees are asking, what's allowable? What can I do and what cannot I, what can I not do within that relationship? And Jesus is answering by explaining what the creator's intent and design in marriage is. It kind of reminds me of um, what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember that many weeks ago, about this life and Christ's desire for us and how he tells us to live 
as, as members of his kingdom is not just about what we can and cannot do. It's not just about what is allowable, but it's about he wants us to have the, the character of the Father, right? And so the Pharisees, they're, they're living just about as lawfully as you can, and they're doing things right, and they know don't do this, and this isn't allowed, and this is allowed, and don't murder, so we won't murder, and don't commit adultery, so we won't commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, I want more than just like this outer rule keeping, but I want your heart. And if you remember, Jesus calls us to the character of the Father. Be perfect as he is perfect. So it's not all about what we do and what we're allowed to do, but it's about who we are. So it's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, don't think about what you can get by with. Like, let me tell you how I how God has designed marriage and it's oneness and it shouldn't be separated. So like, let's talk um, about some application and just kind of reflect for a minute. If, if you're married, I, I think like we understand part of the immediate application. God's designed us to be with our spouse in, in oneness. Um, and we should strive to realize that and not look for how can I get out of this thing. But I think the application, like there's application that's even wider than that. So I want to ask you guys these, this question. Do you, and this is just to consider, well, I'll have another couple that you can answer in a second. But are you living your life based on what God allows? Or are you living your life based on what God intends? Are you living your life based on what God allows or what he intends? So um, here's, I'll I'll help you think through that a little bit more. Um, Here are the type of questions you can If you're doing the first, here are the type of questions that you ask. You ask allowance questions. How close can I get to this, whatever it is, without actually sinning? Or in the dating relationships, it's uh, how far is too far, right? That's that's the question that comes up. Or how can I, like, find biblical support to live the way that I'm living so I can kind of do what I want? Like, can I live in a way that's allowable that I can still get what I want? Those are, like, allowance questions. Questions. Tell me what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and I'm just going to try my best to do that. Versus intention questions. Or intention questions would be, what does God want for me? How did God create me to live? What is his intent? What is his design? How can I be like him and have his good desires? Those are more intention questions. Now, I understand there's plenty of rules and allowance things in scripture, like what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. But do you guys understand what I'm asking? Or do you have any confusion or, or, or clarity on this idea of living just based on what God allows or living based on what God intends? Or do you have any thoughts on that? Another question we could ask is, do you... Do you look to scripture for rules or do you look to scripture to find life? I'll ask you another question. Um, How do you guys think that the non-Christian world views Christianity or views God's word to us? 
Yeah, I, generally, I think, yeah, they, they you know, agree with that. They see, well, Christians, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you just have to be restricted to what? They see it as giving up what they want globally. Mm-hmm. They see it as giving up their happiness. 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 Yeah. For the podcast, that was in quotes, happiness. <laughs> they, don't, they don't see it as like... Um, like a choice a lot for a lot of people like who think that that like I've always been this way and that like it's been like forced upon me or something mm-hmm. and even within the church sometimes with other believers I've been in places where I I can focus on it too like well just just tell me what's right and wrong and can I get by with this and I remember dating it was like what, how close can I get to the fire without doing something wrong versus like what God designs in relationships which has little to do with that how do you guys think that like in our conversation we can shift our perspective on this and, and change even the way that we talk about following Jesus so that it's a little more of the latter of, of living how enjoying the life as God intends it for us to have versus living within the rule book. Like, think about it. when you guys are in accountability with other believers or you're confronting sin. Like, what? how, how might that look a little bit different than what you say? It's not talking to non-believers about it? No, it's even believers, talking to believers or talking to non-believers. Like, what, what could change in in conversation with them that they have a clearer picture of God's intent versus God's rules. Uh, just how it has positively affected your own life, kind of like mm-hmm. a testimony or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like it's I've lived this way and it's, and it's been good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you don't have to worry about so much. You don't have to feel like you have to be in control of everything because, you know, that's not the case. You pray to God pray about it. You have a community that you can speak with and work through with. Maybe like um, humbling yourself. Like not um, talking down to others, whether they're non-believers or believers, in in holding them accountable, and like and like seeing in yourself like what you could be doing better and making it more conversational. Mm-hmm. I think if you think that they're that they're rules and you're doing it because you're following rules, that's gonna show through. So if your heart isn't right about like really desiring to follow the Lord, that's I think that, that's going to show through people are going to be like, oh, you have to do this. So I don't want that because it's a requirement. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people view it, this isn't really answering this is kind of the last question, but I think a lot of people view it as a loss instead of a gain. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but it's the exact opposite which that's really hard to get through to people because to people, they think, well, I have to give up alcohol or X, Y, Z. I have to give up 
partying. I had to give up sex. I had to give up all this. But they they view it as everything they have to lose, and they miss out on everything that you gain mm-hmm. with Christianity. Yeah, like so, this these these rules were were designed for our good, and they it's hard to see that because the temporal kind of satisfaction goes through. I think I think I, I agree with um, Adam when you're approaching and you're talking about the Bible to make it. Um, uh, a testimony of well and give glory to God then they can see that it, the word is at work in your life that it's applicable mm-hmm. in, your, in what you're doing yeah. and what you're saying and what you're feeling and thinking if you um, if you use the word that way as, as a personal testimony I think that that would be that would show them that it's not just rules it's actually um it's actually life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. I think you show them how they want rules in a sense, like where they think biblical rules are like um, holding them back. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can show them the inconsistencies of their own life of without any guidelines or a way of life, you're choosing your way of life and everybody just gets to choose their own way and so how is that ultimately good because if you're the one determining what is good or what is right there's so many examples of how that's gone incredibly wrong Um, and so I think it's showing them there's a way of life that brings like peace and comfort and um joy and hope like there's all kind of you can say this is why we live this way um because we feel like god is so good and so much for us that that's why we want to follow him not because he's just slapping us on the hand all the time telling us no don't do that no don't do this but it is it's yes in christ um there's there's just yes um but what he has is so good and, and i think it's even just verbalizing that and also just showing them some of the inconsistencies sometimes of thinking rules are wrong or bad or you know but how they're actually really they can be really good for us yeah and like to not see them so much as rules but like answers because I think I think people in life they do always want to know what's right and what's wrong and and then, but then when it's when it's put in front of their face, they're like, "Oh, I don't want to know that. Actually, I don't want to know that what I do is wrong." Yeah. But the whole time you're doing it, you are wondering if it's wrong, and you are struggling through it in some sort of way. And so, and so maybe like explaining like it's not rules; it's really just answers to to your like questions. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and I think again, even within our Christian community, like there's a difference when you're when together we're dealing with sin and repenting and there's a difference between us pointing our fingers at each other you shouldn't do that oh, you shouldn't do that god doesn't want you to do that um versus that, that's there's there's part of that god doesn't want that for you but there's also the, the positive side of man he he's he's given us something that's so much greater than what you're doing um so it's not that God doesn't give us rules. He does, but his rules are meant to bring us life. I don't know if you all are familiar with Psalm 19. I love Psalm 19, 7 through 11. 
uh, says the law of the Lord is perfect, <clears throat> diminishing the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making restrictions in your life that are horrible. No. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. His precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Listen, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Mm -hmm. So, but we get so caught up, just like Adam and Eve in the garden of, here's all that I provide for you, God says. Don't eat of that tree. Here's all that I provide for you. <laughs> and they're like, what? I can't eat of that tree? You know, it's like, we, we're looking, we, we see it, these restrictions, and they're not. They're, he's designed our life that it would be good. But unfortunately, I think when we come to Matthew 19, oftentimes, and maybe you've seen this, we're, like, we're usually coming here to see, well, what does God allow? Like, what are the specific rules? And since marriage sucks sometimes, like, what are the loopholes to kind of get out of marriage? And how can I get divorced without sinning? And it's like, but Jesus is saying, I don't know if you can tell, Jesus is saying, here's what I've designed marriage to be. Here's the goodness, the, the oneness that I've designed it to be. But... We, we come to this exception clause, these four words, whoever divorces his wife, verse 9, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, there's really a ton of different interpretations of kind of what, what that means, what exactly Jesus means there, and I don't want to like, go into trying to explain that. Personally, personally, I don't believe that is as much of an exception as oftentimes it's made out to be. Mark and Luke, who give the same account, they don't, they don't have those words in there. Um, they, they leave that out. So it's certainly not, not the focus of what Jesus was saying there. But I don't want to like go into all of the variations of the exception clause, because I think if we did, we'd be completely like missing the point of, of what Jesus is doing here, because that's what, that's what the Pharisees are going for. What's the exception there? When Jesus is agreeing with this pattern throughout all of Scripture of, of unconditional oneness in marriage from creation, I mean, Jesus doesn't mention it, but we see in the book of Hosea, we see in the book of Malachi, Paul talks in the book of Ephesians, a husband's love for his wife is to be modeled after how Christ loves the church, which he's, he's never going to divorce. And, and so he's saying in these verses, God's desire from the beginning is that the two should become one, never to be separated. But we read this verse and we say, oh, so see, you're saying we've got an out. <clears throat> it's like it, it diminishes verses four through eight and what, how Jesus presents marriage to blow it up and then, or to, to diminish that and then say, oh, good, see, we can justify divorce here. Oh, good, it's, I can get out of my commitments because of what I see here. And I, I will say this. Um, if you at any point or you know of people who need to process through a very difficult scenario of whatever marriage they've landed in, like we will talk about that. I know there's extremely like difficult situations um, that we have to navigate through. And as those come up, if they do in our church, like we'll 
we're going to seek the Lord together on what the steps are to take in that. But I just want to make sure that we understand what Jesus is pointing out here about marriage is that regardless of what you think about that little acceptance clause, he's saying repeatedly that God intends marriage to never be broken. That's how he's answering the Pharisee's question of when can I get out of marriage. And that's a tall order, and that's difficult for us to receive, especially in the 21st century where divorce is so prevalent. And some of you all maybe grew up or know people who have grown up in families where the marriage was horrible, and you think, man, to, to commit to that kind of thing for life, that sounds horrible. And um, some of you, if you are married or if you get married, you're at some point you're going to say, maybe, oh, my wife or my husband isn't all that I thought they were going to be, and I've grown bored with them or whatever it is, and those things are going to come up. And so you can understand when the disciples ask, and they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, if marriage is what you're describing, Jesus, it's better not to marry. They're like, That's, this is a, a tall order that you're presenting. Do you see how they're not understanding what Jesus says as here's how you get out of marriage, here's how you can get a divorce. They see what Jesus is saying as, wow, this is an even stronger commitment than we realize. And as far as I can tell from what I read in, in the society, if you were physically able to make kids, then it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't be a, an option. For, people wouldn't consider, oh, maybe I shouldn't get married. So I, I think the disciples are probably like saying to Jesus, almost like throwing out a hyperbole, well, what do you think? We should, no one should get married then. Like it's, that's too, but Jesus like answers their, hey, it's better not to get married, not by saying, no, no, I'm not saying that. It's okay. You should still, everybody should still, you know, try to get married and just try to work it out. But he actually agrees with them on the, yeah, that's, for some, it, it would be best not to get married. So let's look at Matthew 19, um, the, the last three verses. I'll just read them again. And this part can be confusing. I think there's a pretty uh, simple explanation. Uh, the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, which uh, eunuch, um, in general, a eunuch is a man that doesn't have testicles. Not everyone can receive the same. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So he kind of presents three illustrations of of so-called eunuchs. The second one is probably the easiest to understand and explain. Somebody, a eunuch who has been made a eunuch by men. In the time, in the ancient Near East, one thing that they would do to men who were overseeing a royal spouse or harem or something is he would be castrated, usually at a young age, so that his role of overseeing a woman or a bunch of women he wouldn't be tempted by sexual desire because of it. So that's a eunuch made a eunuch by men. Um, the first one, a eunuch who has been so from birth, probably just somebody born without, maybe without fully functioning sexual organs. And the assumption of that kind of person would be, well, they, they wouldn't get married, they can't reproduce, they wouldn't marry. But the third one that I think is kind of the, the focus here is a eunuch who has 
made eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It could be literal, but probably is referring to somebody that's committed to celibacy or somebody who, for the sake of the kingdom of God, chooses actually not to marry or not to pursue that. And Jesus is speaking positively of that idea, it seems. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, very much supports that kind of idea, speaking to the advantage of not marrying. You can devote yourself entirely to the Lord in that situation. And so, um, obviously, this idea of committing not to marry seems very difficult to receive. And Jesus says not everyone is able to receive it. It seems to be this unique role that God has given to some people. But I want to talk to like the non-marrieds for just a minute to not write out, not write off this gift of celibacy too quickly. And watch out for cultural expectations that may not be biblical expectations. For example, in the movies, when everybody that's happy finally eventually gets married. Watch out that you haven't made an idol of of romance or marriage, thinking that I have to get that in order to be satisfied. And for all of us, we need to be aware that singleness is certainly not a lesser call. And I would say that, I mean, I think Jesus is specifically talking about people who are committed to celibacy for, for life, but, but singleness as well. Like, listen to how Paul puts that not being married. Undivided devotion to the Lord. Like, that sounds really good. undivided devotion to the Lord. So I just say, like, what if your desire to seek the kingdom first like, would actually lead you to something that you never thought was an option before? And do you believe that you can have all of the goodness that God intends for you in a life of celibacy if that's what he happens to have called you to? You, you can have It's hard to even explain because I think it's a difficult thing to receive, but it's like how many people do we know, and maybe this is you, that would crumble at the idea and the world would be ruined at the idea of not getting married? Like that's a lot of young single people. And I think that if marriage is your everything, you're going to crumble until you get it, and then once you get it, you're going to crumble after you have it, if that's, if it's an idol that you've kind of set up in your life. So I would say to all of us, marriage is, is not the goal. Like it's not our goal in life to get married. And I know that it's, it seems easy for single people to, or to hear a married person say that you're like, well, that's easy to say, but I think it's the same message really to married people that if you're expecting marriage this imperfect temporal marriage, if you're expecting in that alone to find happiness and contentment and everything you've ever needed and everything you've ever wanted, and you've raised up marriage as like this indispensable part of your life to get those things, and you, your ideal of marriage is an idol, then marriage isn't going to live up to your expectations because it's, it's imperfect and we're imperfect people taking on this thing, and, and it wasn't designed to fulfill every need and every desire that we have. Now again, 
I want to be clear, like, I love marriage, and I think, especially for those of us that are married, we should love marriage, but it has to fall in line behind the kingdom, behind kingdom desires. And if it doesn't, then the sad irony is what we were talking about at the beginning. Those who are married are not going to be satisfied until they can get out of that marriage. And if you're not married, you're not going to be satisfied until you can get into marriage. And nobody's going to be satisfied. But Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What will be added to you in that context? Everything that you need. Everything that the Lord knows that you need. So if you're married... Don't look for loopholes to get out of this, but be married for the sake of the kingdom of God. If you're, if you're not married, then don't just look to get married as your thing, but be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of what I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's 27. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. And he goes on to say, for the present form of this world is passing away. Like even marriage, it's passing away. Marriage is not the goal of life. God's eternal kingdom is more important than our little passing kingdom here that we try to make for ourselves. So don't make marriage everything to you and seek God's kingdom. If, if in your seeking God's kingdom that leads you to marry for the sake of the kingdom, do it. But if you're seeking God's kingdom and it leads you to celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, then choose that. Or if you're already married, then live your life loving your spouse as one with her or as one with him for the sake of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah Jared, I was just thinking about something you just said about um, idolizing marriage. Mm -hmm. And I've known a few people that they're living for the Lord and then they go, well, they kind of take it into their own hands, mm -hmm. the marriage part of it. And then they end up going apart from the will of God. Mm -hmm. And I was just noticing this here that when, when the Pharisees asked them, they said, can can, we, can a man divorce his wife for any cause, any reason? And then Jesus brings in the idea that God joined people together in marriage. Mm -hmm. So when you get married, you're not moving into your own little idea and your own little, mm, yeah. your, your personal plan yeah. that's, you know, to the side of what God has, in, you know, invited. You guys are very distracted. <laughs> <laughs> But you have, you have, you've been, you brought God into the situation. Yeah. Marriage is bringing God into the situation. I think that that's missing from the idea of marriage today. Is that yeah. it's a God ordained thing, and it's a God's plan. So when you when you do it, you're bringing God into that situation. Yeah. So if you do it apart from that, like you said, you're going to idolize it, and it's going to fall apart on you, or it's yeah. going to, there's going to be a lot of disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a good point about idolizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else have any confusion or questions? Or? I think the world doesn't understand that it's, um, it's, it's a mirror of, of the church, mm -hmm. of, the, of the bride of Christ. And they don't, they don't get that, how holy it is and how, how important to God it, God has made it to be. Because yeah. they, they don't understand the whole concept of um, being the right Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I love um, the Ephesians passage that talks all about that. It's like, yeah, marriage was... It wasn't like 
God created a bunch of things and he's like, okay, now which of these am I going to use to show my love for my people? But I think he like created marriage with that in mind. Like that's, I think that's some of what Paul's getting at in Ephesians. It's, that's, that was the purpose behind marriage. It's one of the strongest, if not the strongest, like, ways that we have to describe and, and live out the gospel in a very real way. One of the ways. So, um, we have a chance as Christians to show the world something different in marriage and in being single. Or, again, regardless of if you're going to be single for the rest of your life or single just for a time. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on like some more specifics about how, besides just uh, we just won't get divorced as married people, or we we just will um, like like what are some specific ways that you feel like man we can we can stand out as as a different like as understanding God's intention for marriage uh, or or for singleness or whatever it is like what what can we do what can we say any ideas. About marriage, you mean like to, to in general to other people? Yeah, it's going to stand in contrast to society. What can we say or what, what can we do? And, and in the same way, I think like what, how could your all's being single look different than other people's being single? Not married. I know that you guys are dating. That's kind of <laughs> I think there's an amount for single people, there's just an obsession to a sense in finding someone like you're saying. Um, and I think like that's that's such a disservice to the time of being single. Like I don't think it should be such a focus to look for someone instead of someone trusting God to provide that if that's what his will is for you. Um, because to, like, to continually focus on that takes away from that intimacy with the Lord and that you can have in this time and the, the things that you are called to do because you don't, you're not called to, like you're not tied to somebody who you're, because that takes a lot of energy and a lot of time to like make that relationship great and to represent Christ in church well and not having to do that gives you a lot of freedom to do so many other things that are more worthy of your time than looking for somebody or dating or some, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, it, I never thought about that, but it, it kind of ruins what Paul's mm-hmm. suggesting in 1 Corinthians 7 of this like single-minded devotion to the Lord if all you can think about is not wanting to be single, you know, it's like, well, no, now you're you're in just the same spot as a poor married person that has to think about somebody else. I was, uh, I was reading a book today that talked about that, and it, but it talked about more about, um, Idol, like it talked about idolizing marriage, but it also talks about idolizing your spouse and um, or the person that you're dating, and that that can put too much pressure on them because um, they can't be God to you, and they can't and like and like humans weren't meant to be worshipped. Like we're worshippers, not worshipees, and um, and just like how that can that can really like greatly affect a marriage, and so I think. I think by like by because because I think because I think it's a God-given desire to 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 desire marriage like or to feel like you're called to that but not idolizing it or and then once you're in it like not not being like okay like now everything's 
like done and I'm gonna idolize you and now now I don't need God anymore because I have you you know and doing that somebody can like ruin a marriage and so I think I think as like as like a single person or like single people we we can just try to like keep ourselves in check on like what we're desiring in a marriage and like kind of like just looking at within yourself of like why am I desiring that and what does that really look like mm-hmm. and then and then like trying to live that out and trying to just make sure that like you're always desiring the Lord more than you're desiring yeah. marriage. That's really good. Yeah. Oh boy, that's really good. Yeah, it's like um, could all of us individually could we be satisfied with just just having the the love of of the Lord in our lives? Because even even as a married person. When, when my marriage isn't just going along perfectly and it's when my marriage is not everything that I want, I, like, will I still be satisfied in, in who the Lord is? And who, if, if I'm not, then I'm going if I'm, to, if I'm trying to find all of that in Mary Beth, then I'm, and when she lets me down in that, then I'm going to just go try to get out of this one and go try to find it somewhere else. And I think it's similar with singles. It's like, man, if we, if all of our efforts and if we're not going to be satisfied until we can find that person, then once we find them, you're still not going to be. Mm-hmm. And we see that time and time again all around us. It's just this romanticized view and Hollywood and all around of oh, everything, like there's this, the one for me and we're going to be happily ever after. And, um, it's a weird thing. It's like what so many people have seen is a horrible picture of marriage. So they think, well, they look at their mom and dad, which most of us, maybe not in this room, but like have divorced parents or have had a really hard marriage. And we're just like, oh, gosh, if that's marriage, I don't care to have that to this fantasy world of, you know, movies and stuff where it's like, oh, it just paints this such a beautiful picture. So it's like it's just unfortunate that there's not more couples, I guess, that represent truly a couple that are really wanting to serve God and not idolize each other, but truly submit one to another for the sake of Christ. And it makes me sad because I think so many people just don't have good pictures of it. So of course they don't value it. And that's, you know, more and more heterosexual couples are not getting married because of it. And that's just, it's just unfortunate. It makes me sad thinking about how, like you said earlier, that like singleness, it does, people do make it feel, make you feel lesser when you are single, especially if you don't seem to be desiring marriage ever. Like I, and, and like our society is so revolved around sex. A lot of people are like, oh, like, the number one thing you hear men say is, like, oh, having sex with the same woman for the rest of my life would just be awful, like, let alone, like, never at all. Like, she's going to be celibate, you know? Like, that's just not something that our society desires at all. Um, and I mean, why would they without Christ? But but it, it's just kind of, it's really, like, discouraging sometimes because sometimes I think, Sometimes I catch myself thinking, like, well, if only I wasn't a Christian, which is so stupid, <laughs> like, you know. But it's like, but, but it's because it's so, a lot of people, like, you tell it to, and they're like, oh, that sucks, you know. Yeah. But it's like, no, it's really good, and it's yeah. great, you know. Yeah. 
um, but but society just like conditions you that like yeah. oh giving up these things is really awful. Yeah. Yeah, with my friend, that's her exact reaction. She's just like, she's always oh I, I explained to her my relationship and she just doesn't get it. She's like, You've been together for three years. How I mean, it, how is that possible? And you know just. And I just say there are more important things, and and it just doesn't it doesn't register. It like I can see it in her eyes. It just doesn't register her, to her at all. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, just um, what maybe we can walk away thinking through. Um, but first, kind of back on the beginning portion that we were talking about. As you're faced with decisions, like you're going to face decisions, maybe even tonight or this coming week or whatever, where you're going to you're going to want to decide: should I do this or should I do that? And is this something that's allowable? Or is this not allowable? And I would just suggest instead of just always asking, "Hey, what what does God allow?" to to convert that into what does God want for me? What is His desire for me? And part of that is showed by is shown by what he says is is allowable or not. But what is like what is the goodness that God has designed me to live in? And I know the question of what does God want for me. I know that's a question maybe that a lot of us kind of ask in many areas. But the areas that that's not the case, where you're just trying to say, hey, what's the what's the law here? What do I have to do and what do I not have to do? How about like what what does God desire? What is his intent as I pursue whatever it is that I'm pursuing? Um, and, and, and in accountability and in confronting sin, I didn't say this earlier, but there's there's a way to talk with each other about sin that's not, well, I did say it, that's not just pointing the finger, well, God doesn't want us to do that, and you shouldn't do it, but just to express the goodness that we've all experienced of actually living the way that he is designed that is better than what we can live. Ultimately, it's better, and maybe it doesn't feel better in the second, but we've experienced how it's better. And so that's, I think, how we encourage each other to, to walk uh, in righteousness. And then just consider how, and especially in your conversations, but how you um, demonstrate, but how you can talk about Relationship, whether it's the relationship that we have with our spouse or it's the relationship that y'all have, um, that that you're pursuing the Lord and just what your relationships look like with the um, with significant others or potential significant others. How how can we live those out in a way that demonstrates something that's drastically different than what our society demonstrates? So I think about like in our culture, I don't hear a lot of men or women just speaking really positively of their spouse, but usually we hear like just kind of bickering and well, oh, I can't believe my, especially I think among men, you, you, if you're hanging out in a garage with guys, well, oh, you're, my wife said this, and, you, and it's and same thing, women I'm sure do the same thing, and just kind of rag on their spouses. And it's like, no, let's like talk honorably and and, and lift them up and show that, hey, we're, we're seeking something greater than just um, this, Relationship where my spouse does everything that I want them to do, and then it's as singles, just in your like conversations as you talk with each other, as you talk with other people, and as maybe you go on a date or whatever it is. Like, is there ways that you can speak that show, hey, this like relationship and and romantic fulfillment isn't 
um, isn't isn't my number one goal in life, and God will provide me with everything that I need, uh, regardless of if that results in a successful relationship or not.